Welcome back, everyone. Uh, please take your seats. We're ready to begin the second part of our program. <clears throat> Can I have your attention? Please take your seats. Thank you. My name is uh, Christopher Preble, and I'm the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. I'm also the co-chair, along with Jim Harper, who you've already met, and my colleague Ben Friedman, uh, of Cato's Strategic Counterterrorism Initiative. It's an ambitious three-year project. It's made possible by the generous support of the Atlantic Philanthropies with additional support from the Open Society Institute. I really want to take an opportunity again to thank them for their generous support uh, of this project. Um, I want to thank also Daniel Benjamin for joining us today. We, uh, when we launched our project back in 2008, uh, we identified the top experts on counterterrorism in this country and, and, frankly, around the world, and Dan was, was right at the top of our list. Uh, he participated in a discussion that we, that Cato hosted in Chicago uh, back in late August of uh, 2008. He was unable, unfortunately, to join us back uh, a year ago today, but he was busy uh, with uh, the new administration, uh, with the incoming administration, and I'm really very grateful to him uh, for joining us, uh, to take it, taking time out to join us today. Uh, let me just introduce him to you briefly. Uh, Daniel Benjamin was sworn in as the coordinator for counterterrorism at the Department of State with the rank of ambassador at large on May 28, 2009. Prior to his appointment, Ambassador Benjamin was director of the Center on the United States and Europe and a senior fellow in foreign policy studies at the Brookings Institution from December 2006 to May 2009. He spent six years as a senior fellow in the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic International Studies here in Washington. Uh, from 1994 to 1999, Mr. Benjamin served on the National Security Council staff as Director for Counterterrorism in the Office of Transnational Threats, 1998-1999, and before that as a foreign policy speechwriter and special assistant to President Clinton. Uh, before entering the government, uh, Mr. Benjamin was a foreign correspondent for Time Magazine and the Wall Street Journal. He has co-written two books, The Age of Sacred Terror, published by Random House in 2002, and The Next Attack, The Failure of the War on Terror and a Strategy for Getting It Right, published by Holt Times Books in 2005. Uh, he also edited America and the World in the Age of Terror, A New Landscape in International Relations, has written numerous articles in New York Times, Washington Post, Slate, Time Magazine, and many others. He holds degrees from Harvard and Oxford, uh, where he was a Marshall Scholar. Please join me in welcoming Daniel Benjamin. Thank you very much, Chris, for that uh, kind introduction. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be here today, a uh, particular pleasure to be back uh, on uh, Massachusetts Avenue in the uh, think tank capital of the universe. Um, <clears throat> I used to be an uh, inhabitant of, uh, of Massachusetts Avenue, and there have been uh, uh, there have been moments when I wondered why I ever left this comfortable home, uh, but those really were just moments. And um, let me just say I'm really pleased to have an opportunity to speak with you today about uh, the threats we face in the Obama administration's counterterrorism policies for confronting them. And I'm, I'm particularly pleased because you mentioned the project, which I was involved in. I had a lot of uh, uh, opportunity to try out some of these ideas in that forum, and uh, and there's a certain um, uh, poetic justice to bringing them forward here now. Well, one of the critical tests of an administration's counterterrorism policies is to see how they emerge from contact with a genuine terrorist event. The attempted Christmas Day bombing nearly cost several hundred people their lives on flight, on Northwest flight, 253. 
Uh, make no mistake, we had a very close call, and we are extraordinarily fortunate that no lives were lost. The event was a stark reminder that we are in a constant and pitiless race to head off our foe's relentless technological advances and confront its ability to deploy a changing cast of recruits. The President has rightly taken us to task for some key failures, above all in the realm of intelligence analysis and watch listing. Other shortcomings are obvious. We need to have online the screening techniques and technologies for a new generation of explosive devices. We are working those issues aggressively now. Equally important, the events of Christmas Day demonstrated that some of the understandings that underlay how we organized ourselves for counterterrorism needed updating. Other events in the latter half of 2009 have also underscored how some of our operating assumptions were no longer adequate. Let me name the most outstanding of these assumptions. First, we know now that al-Qaeda affiliates, not just the group's core leadership in Pakistan, will indeed seek to carry out strikes against the U.S. homeland. We can no longer count on them to be focused exclusively on the near enemy, on the governments uh, in their own countries. In retrospect, of course, it is abundantly clear that any group that was prepared to become part of the al-Qaeda network would embrace the essential approach of the mother group. This strategy would lead the group to attempt attacks that would appeal to its target audience of potential sympathizers, and they could be either against the near enemy or against the far enemy, that is, against us. As I will discuss later, much of our policy making, especially with regard to the region where this plot was hatched, has been premised on the conviction that we were headed toward exactly that kind of spread of the threat. But our defensive arrangements, and specifically our watch listing, for example, were not there yet, and that was a clear shortcoming. Second, for years we have known about al-Qaeda's desire to recruit militants with clean records to deploy against the United States. But we had not experienced any really eye-catching efforts to slip into the country, slip someone into the country in some time, leading some to speculate that the United States had successfully deterred such operatives from entering our borders. But as a number of recent events have made clear, we cannot afford to have any sense of false security. As we've seen in the last few months in two high-profile law enforcement cases, individuals who had been trained and handled from the badlands of the federally administered tribal areas of Pakistan have been operating within our borders. A bus driver, Najibullah Zazi, was trained in Pakistan and now faces charges in federal court for allegedly planning to set off a series of bombs in the United States. An indictment unsealed in uh, Chicago in December portrays an American citizen, David Headley, allegedly uh, playing a pivotal role in the 2008 attack in Mumbai, which killed more than 170 people including six Americans, and dramatically raised tensions in South Asia. Yes, our intelligent and law enforcement tripwires worked, but that is not reason enough for complacency because the threat we face is dynamic and evolving. And let me just say as an aside that the example of David Headley shows that al-Qaeda is not the only group or the only group of groups <clears throat> with global ambitions that we need to worry about. Lashkar-e Taiba has made it clear that it is willing to undertake bold mass casualty operations with a target set that would please al-Qaeda planners. The group's more recent thwarted conspiracy to attack the United States Embassy in Bangladesh should only deepen concern that it could indeed evolve into a genuinely global terrorist threat. Very few things worry me as much as the strength and the ambition of LET, a truly malign presence in South Asia. 
We are working closely with allies in the region and elsewhere to reduce the threat from this very dangerous group. A third myth, I should say, has also been dispelled. Americans are immune to al-Qaeda's ideology. While domestic incidents of radicalization are significantly lower than in many Western nations, several high-profile cases demonstrate that we must remain vigilant. The recent arrest of five Americans in Pakistan suggests that al-Qaeda is inspiring U.S. individuals to pursue violence. <clears throat> Similarly, the trickle of individuals who have gone to fight in East Africa demonstrates the group's reach into that region. <clears throat> even, and even if some go for nationalistic purposes, they are still becoming radicalized later on. The importances of these cases should not be glossed over. The lesson here is clear. In a long struggle such as the one we're in, there are few greater perils than intellectual stagnation or bureaucratic stasis. Our foe, as the president said the other day, is a nimble adversary, and we have, quote, a never-ending race to protect our country and stay one step ahead. Because of the flatness of their organizations, a high level of inspiration and ingenuity, we need to be on our game all the time. We need to keep in mind the words of the 9-11 report, which in this respect got it precisely right. Quote, it is therefore crucial to find ways of routinizing and even bureaucratizing the exercise of the imagination. This is really the paramount and enduring challenge we face, staying sharp, innovating our defensive systems, maintaining our intellectual edge. These are all essential. Now, having observed changes in the threat that demonstrate anew the adaptive qualities of our enemies, I want to add a note of perspective because we shouldn't ignore the signs of their weakness as well. Let me point out three. First, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula claimed credit for the Christmas Day plot. Now, can anyone remember the last time al-Qaeda or an affiliate claimed credit for a bomb that failed to kill? Second, as our intelligence officials have noted on numerous occasions, al-Qaeda in the Fatah is under more pressure than ever before. And three, al-Qaeda and its supporters are clearly feeling the effect of our work with the international financial community to stop the flow of money to terrorists. Now, as al-Qaeda affiliates turn to kidnapping for ransom, to raise funds, we are urging our partners around the world to adopt a no-concessions policy towards hostage-takers so that we can diminish this alternative funding stream in regions such as the Sahel, the Fatah, and Yemen. But clearly, the point should not be uh, overlooked. Their financial circumstances have deteriorated. <clears throat> we should not score all the points on one side of the ledger. That's the point of this recitation. That leads to fear-mongering, it blurs the picture and it undercuts our efforts to get our assessments right. Another challenge we face involves distinguishing what went wrong in the latter half of 2009, more precisely on Christmas Day, from what did not. In other words, we need to fix the problems that presented themselves and not get into a panic or abandon the other parts of our strategy that work. And what I'd like to do now is turn from the headlines of the last few weeks to the broader strategy. Because most of what we are doing is fundamentally sound and will pay off for us in the long term. Let me walk you through it. If I had spoken to this audience a year or two ago, my view would have been that the United States had developed and was employing with great skill um, what I would call tactical offensive counterterrorism capabilities, taking individual terrorists off the street and disrupting cells and operations. 
Yet on the strategic side, I was concerned that we were losing ground in the overall uh, in the overall campaign against international terrorism, and in particular, that we were failing to trump Al Qaeda's narrative. In my roughly eight months in office, my view of our tactical capabilities has been more than borne out. I'm pleased to say that, as well, that I believe the administration is addressing that critically important strategic gap. In Afghanistan, the president has put forward a clear plan to constrain the Taliban and destroy the al-Qaeda core. And the administration and Congress are putting up the resources necessary to achieve that goal. General McChrystal's positive comments yesterday suggest that we are making progress there and that we should not succumb to any easy defeatism. We're working with Pakistan to establish the kind of relationship based on trust and mutual interest that will lead to the defeat of radicalism in that country, which has in recent months seen so much bloodshed. We understand the trust deficit that was built up over decades between the United States and Pakistan and that created the current situation. We know that these challenges will not, become over, will not be overcome overnight, but we are on the right track. We're also working on those regions outside of South Asia where radicalism has been flourishing. Since December 25th, there has been uh, more than a touch of collective hysteria in the press that a new safe haven crawling with terrorists has suddenly emerged in Yemen. In fact, Yemen was arguably the very first front. If you go all the way back to the last days of the first President Bush's term in December of 1992, perhaps the very first al-Qaeda attack happened there when operatives tried to bomb a hotel housing U.S. troops in Aden who were en route to Somalia for the U.N. mission there. <clears throat> Long before the USS Cole was attacked, there were a number of major conspiracies in the 1990s that were also based in Yemen, many of them pointed at Saudi Arabia. The threat has waxed and waned in the interim, but in, uh, but in Yemen right now, it is clearly at a peak. Al-Qaeda has always had a foothold in Yemen, and it has always been a concern. What I can say definitively is that the Obama administration has been focused on Yemen since day one. On my first day at the State Department, the same day that I was sworn in, the Deputy Secretary of State said to me, here are some of the priorities you need to be looking at, and right at the top of the list was Yemen. We've worked very closely and much more effectively with the Yemeni authorities over the last several months, and we're making progress. The result of that engagement has been that forceful actions were taken last month in Yemen and have continued against AQAP, and these were by far the most serious actions taken in many years. I note that in today's newspaper, there is another uh, report of a senior militant being killed in Yemen by government forces. Our strategy is to build up the Yemeni capacity to deal with the security threats within that country, but also, and this is very important, to mitigate the very acute economic crisis that Yemen is dealing with. Yemen is grappling with serious poverty. As you all know, it is the poorest country in the Arab world, and that complicates governance across a country that is larger than Iraq. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula takes advantage of insecurity in various regions of Yemen, and that is worsened by internal conflicts and competition for governance and competition for governance by tribal and non-state actors. That's why we must address the problem of terrorism in Yemen from a comprehensive and long-term perspective, one that considers various factors, including assisting with governance and development efforts, as well as equipping the country's counterterrorism forces. This effort represents a comprehensive approach to security policy and one that we are implementing in cooperation 
with other countries, including Saudi Arabia and the United Kingdom. The Gulf states are very concerned, and there have been press reports worth noting that the UAE, for example, is allocating more than $500 million for support in Yemen. What we are doing in Yemen is what we are doing in many other countries, building capacity. Consistent diplomatic engagement with counterparts and senior leaders helps build the political will for common counterterrorism objectives. And when there is political will, we can address the nuts and bolts aspects of capacity building. We're working to make the counterterrorism training of police, prosecutors, border officials, and members of the judiciary more systematic, more innovative, and more far-reaching. Capacity building also includes uh, more basic police training and terrorist finance training. This truly represents a whole-of-government approach. This is both good counterterrorism and good statecraft. We're addressing the state insufficiencies that terrorism thrives on, and we're helping invest our partners more effectively in confronting the threat rather than looking thousands of miles away for help or simply looking away altogether. We're also working on what my colleague, Deputy National Security Advisor John Brennan, calls the upstream factors. We need to confront the political, social, and economic conditions that our enemies exploit to win over the new recruits, the funders, and those whose tacit support enables the militants to carry forward their plans. As we look at the problem of transnational terror and its long-term implications, we are putting at the core of our strategic policies a recognition of the phenomenon of radicalization. That is, we are asking ourselves time and again, are our actions going to result in the removal of one terrorist with the resulting creation of 10 more? What can we do to attack the drivers of radicalization so that al-Qaeda and its affiliates finally have a shrinking pool of recruits? And, vitally, are we hewing to our values in this struggle? Because, as President Obama has said from the outset, there should be no trade-off between our security and our values. Indeed, in light of what we know about radicalization, it is clear that by navigating, that navigating by our values is an essential part of a successful counterterrorism effort. We have moved to rectify the excesses of the past few years by working to close the prison at Guantanamo Bay, by forbidding enhanced interrogation techniques and developing a more systematic method of dealing with detainees. We are also demonstrating our commitment to the rule of law by trying Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and other al-Qaeda operatives in our criminal court system. The threat is global, and our enemies latch onto grievances on behalf of the entire Muslim world. So we must look to resolve the longstanding problems that fuel those grievances. At the top of the list is the Arab-Israeli conflict. And as you know, President Obama, Secretary Clinton, and Special Envoy George Mitchell are working very hard to resolve that. But even with their efforts, peace in the Middle East will take plenty of time. And as we know, it will not eliminate all of the threats. But while the big policy challenges matter in radicalization, local drivers are also critical in making individuals vulnerable to the appeal of al-Qaeda's ideology and its narrative. We are developing tailored approaches to alter them, to address the issues of education, healthcare, social welfare, and economic opportunity that create the conditions of marginalization and alienation and perceived or real deprivation. In recognition of this, my first step has been to build a unit within my office focusing on what we in the government called countering violent extremism. This will look at local communities that are most prone to radicalization. There's a broad understanding across the government that we have done, not done nearly enough to address underlying conditions for at-risk populations, 
and we have also not done enough to improve the ability of moderates to voice their views and strengthen opposition to violence. To be sure, terrorism is a common challenge shared by nations across the globe, one that requires diplomacy and one that the United States cannot solve alone. The Obama administration has worked hard to reach out and on the basis of mutual interests and mutual respect to forge international coalitions. The administration has been working at reinvigorating alliances across the board and reengaging in the multilateral fora concerned with counterterrorism, fora that, in all honesty, were neglected for some time as, um, at many, and in specifically at many UN entities, at the G8, and in the vast range of regional organizations that are eager to engage on counterterrorism issues. The net effect of our work has been manifold. We are increasing the pool of donors for capacity building. We are strengthening the international sense of resolve against terror. And we are also strengthening global norms so that countries jointly do a better job to build security together. As December 25th made clear, there is still much to figure out, and there can be no assurance of a future without real setbacks. December 25th certainly underscored the continuing peril we face and the determination of our foes and the evolving complexity of the overall threat. But it's important to keep in mind that contemporary terrorism has been decades in the making, and it will take many more years to unmake it. There is much we still need to learn, especially about how to prevent individuals from choosing the path of violence. But I believe we now have the right framework for our policies, and ultimately, I'm confident this will lead to decisions and actions that will strengthen security for our nation and for the global community. Thank you very much for coming to listen today, and I'd be happy to take your questions. Ambassador uh, Benjamin for his remarks. Uh, we will now have a little bit of time for questions. Uh, as always, please keep your remarks brief. Uh, form them in the frame of a question would be the ideal scenario. Uh, and please wait for the microphone. And right here, my colleague, uh, Jim Harper. This morning we had a discussion among experts who are many of them still here. And a theme that came up uh, several times was the concept of an adult conversation. Mostly we're talking about domestic audiences, which would not be your um, your wheelhouse at the State Department. Um, but what is the thinking on the, on the administration's part about having an adult conversation? The consensus seemed to be that, that uh, coming forward, admitting error, talking about, talking about failures uh, was appropriate and calming to the public. I note also that you refer to what's, what many people call the Christmas attack as December 25th, which, which withdraws any religious connotation from it. Is that on purpose? The Christmas attack withdraws any religious con. Oh, um, I think I called it both, and um, you know, uh, <clears throat> I think in the United States more than anywhere else, we understand how how much Christmas is both a religious and a secular holiday. So I guess uh, I haven't been uh, appropriately sensitive to that uh, distinction. But um, <clears throat> and as. Uh, you know, someone who sees plenty of uh, holiday decorations every time he goes in the building uh, in the month of December, I guess, uh, I'm accustomed to uh, that secularization of the holiday. But uh, perhaps that's a discussion for a different uh, forum on uh, church and state. Um, now, as for the adult conversation, I, I, you know, I hope we're having an adult conversation. And uh, certainly, uh, 
you know, the president's um, emphasis on errors that were made and taking quick uh, responsibility, I think, is meant to achieve that goal. Um, uh, goodness knows we've had enough adult conversations within the government, some of them rather um, harrowing, um, about roles and responsibilities, I should say. And, and so this has been very, I think, adult in the way that we have taken this on. Um, in terms of uh, the adult conversation in the broader public about the nature of the threat, well, I think uh, the president has done a good job in noting how nimble our adversaries have been. I've tried to be uh, aspire to uh, some kind of adulthood or maturity in talking both about the strengths and the weaknesses of our um, of our uh, opponents. And I know that when we met in Chicago, um, the need to emphasize both was a, a constant theme. I think that if you look at what our colleagues are doing uh, at um, the Department of uh, Homeland Security, and I don't want to speak for them, but they've made the word resilience uh, really a keystone of their discourse. And I think that that is uh, an essential component of any um, of any serious discussion of the threat we face because, uh, as I said, it's been decades in the making. It's not going to be uh, uh, unmade overnight. So um, I hope that those are all key elements uh, of this. I think the president also, uh, in his uh, last set of remarks, at least I think it was his last set of remarks on the threat, um, you know, noted that there are significant challenges and, and costs to having uh, a perfect security, which I think the nation, you know, um, recognizes and that, uh, um, you know, perfect performance every single time is going to be an enormous challenge. But at the same time, you know, his job is to protect the country and he's demanding the highest possible performance from uh, uh, from his staff. Uh, but I, as a follow-up question to you, I would I'd be interested in what the other elements of, uh, uh, of an insured conversation would be. The whole event will be for review on Cato.org. Uh, actually, as soon as I asked that question, I actually wanted to take it back, so thank you. Uh, um, in his Cairo speech, President Obama uh, acknowledged the negative impact that anti-terrorism financing laws were having on specifically Muslim charities. Uh, and uh, it certainly, you know, you can expand that to... Uh, that same negative impact on all humanitarian aid, regardless of the nature of the charity, to conflict zones. And that would seem to be a very counterproductive, uh, not just from, from denying humanitarian aid to those areas, but from the messaging standpoint that can be exploited by the extremists, which would suggest that the United States is indifferent to suffering in those countries. Um, and yet, today, you said that you thought that anti-terrorism financing was a success. So how, how do you tie those together, and what are you doing to uh, make sure that you address what, what President Obama said about correcting that negative impact? Uh, <clears throat> it's a very good question, and uh, it's an issue that is uh, constantly being uh, discussed within the administration uh, with regard to a number of different uh, geographic areas. I, the, I think the most important thing to say is that the um, the amount of money derived from uh, humanitarian aid specifically as opposed, um, is, you know, only a portion of the overall part of the, uh, what we might call the terrorist budget. We're looking very hard at, you know, the individual donors who are um, moving money 
who are you know radical individuals who uh, have considerable means who are moving money to um, terrorists. We're working on things such as bulk cash smuggling. Um, we are looking at those charities that have been covers for terrorist organizations, and they're doing very limited um, uh, humanitarian work. Uh, and in those cases where you know we're concerned with issues of you know bribe spillage etc from uh, humanitarian organizations we're taking a hard look at, at you know what what the greater priority is and um, you know many of us have, have made the argument that we need to always keep uh, keep in sight that we that starvation is not going to uh, help us with our counterterrorism uh, equities so it's a very complicated calculus but I do think that the important thing is that the majority of the uh, funding streams that we have cut off have not had an impact on the humanitarian issue. Now, there's a related issue, which is that uh, Muslims understandably want to fulfill their uh, religious obligation uh, to give charity, and it has been uh, uh, something of a challenge to get particular organizations um, uh, affirmed as you know ones that are uh, absolutely not involved in anything that's um, inappropriate. And that is a, a process problem, and I believe the government's working on it. I'll go back here. Um, please identify yourself. Chia uh, Chen, freelance correspondent, uh, Ambassador uh, Benjamin. Uh, I would like first uh, offer my late congratulation to your new job. I hope this will put your knowledge into a practical use. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Yemen is a very poor country. I would like to know, do we have a long-term economic development for uh, Yemen in a long-term frame? Thank you. Thank you. Do we have a long-term economic plan for Yemen? Uh, <clears throat> well, we're certain. Economic development. Well, we're certainly working on uh, exactly that. Uh, Yemen has a lot of very urgent uh, threats that need to be uh, dealt with on a day-to-day -day basis. It has critical problems in terms of just basic budget support, overwhelming uh, levels of, uh, of unemployment, and uh, you know continuing uh, and really worsening problems of uh, in terms of the water table being depleted and of uh, the uh, diminution of its energy resources, which is, I think, its number one international commodity. Uh, but we are certainly working towards having that development plan, and I would point to the uh, uh, the meeting of the Friends of Yemen that's going to take place later this month in, in London as a basis for uh, putting that together. I should note that there's also a lot of work going on uh, with the international uh, financial institutions to address uh, Yemen's structural uh, economic problems. Um, I don't think we have published the one uh, comprehensive plan, and a lot of this needs to be worked on in conjunction with the Yemenis because this is not something that's going to be imposed on from without. But um, I can tell you that there are um, numerous wheels turning on this issue uh, within the U.S. government. Hi, this is Kay Ganam with the Charity and Security Network. I was gratified to hear your comments on uh, addressing 
the root causes of violent extremism and, and making that part of the overall strategy. And I'm wondering uh, how more can be done in that area, particularly in making use of the contributions civil society can make not only humanitarian aid, but peace-building activities, uh, long-term development, and education. Uh, I, I don't think we have time enough to enumerate them. Um, I, I think I would turn the uh, question a little bit on its head and say there's probably no uh, success in this area that can happen without civil society, precisely because so many of the societies in which we need to engage in um, uh, it's the NGOs that have the ground knowledge, which is vitally important. It's the NGOs that are politically palatable because there are many places where, uh, quite frankly, our engagement is not – direct engagement will not be um, constructive. Um, <clears throat> it, this is um, really one of the big challenges is, is creating those public-private partnerships that are going to uh, uh, make the difference, whether it's in education, healthcare provision, um, any number of other areas, governance and the like. So, um, uh, you know, you, you, you name the problem, and uh, I think you will find a lot of different NGOs working on it, uh, and, uh, you know, so much the better, and we need to do a better job within the government. We're doing a lot already, but I think we constantly need to improve our game there, too, in terms of uh, taking advantage of uh, the resources that exist within the uh, NGO community. Uh, good morning, Your Excellency. Uh, I'm Jack Pincheski. I'm, uh, I'm an Australian tourist. Um, that's the best way to describe myself. You mentioned that the Arab-Israeli conflict, conflict was a source of uh, inspiration for radicalization in the Islamic world. Uh, how helpful is assessment, and how helpful is this assessment, and how can we conflate these two issues when the majority of international terrorist attacks really don't have that much to do with the Arab-Israeli conflict? Uh, main example being the 9/11 terror attacks. The main uh, reason given was the stationing of American troops in Saudi Arabia. Well, I'm not sure I would agree that the, that the main reason was the stationing of troops in Saudi Arabia. That was certainly what uh, bin Laden uh, and others uh, cited um, in 1998 in, in with the, uh, the famous fatwa. But uh, certainly the Arab-Israeli conflict has been uh, a centerpiece of their rhetoric I think the more important point, though, is um, not what the terrorists themselves say, uh, but how much uh, concern about the plight of the Palestinians and the failure to achieve a peace has created an environment in which, um, uh, you know, the, the al-Qaeda narrative has purchased, in which there is this notion that the United States uh, and is, an, is a predatory power in league with uh, others to uh, steal Muslim countries and steal their wealth uh, uh, and destroy their religion. Um, and as long as uh, the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict is associated on the web and everywhere else with this uh, with this argument, then um, you know I think it, it makes it very tough for us to demonstrate uh, our fundamental concern about. Uh, the well-being of Muslim populations around the world. Um, I have no illusions about how hard this is going to be, and that is an important part of why we're also doing our best to look at local drivers of radicalization. But I don't think that there is a serious argument uh, that such uh, conflicts 
don't play into the hands of uh, the rhetorician, ret the rhetorical masters of um, of uh, Al Qaeda and other uh, radical groups. Uh, hi, uh, Pat Span from Arlington. Um, after the uh, Christmas incident, I noticed there were, I read several articles that. Um, we're calling that uh, maybe the uh, visa program should be taken out of the department and given to, say, Homeland Security. Is there any uh, likelihood that, that something like this will actually happen? Uh, obviously, this is, uh, this is an issue uh, that has uh, attracted some attention from people on, uh, from, uh, on Capitol Hill. Um, <clears throat> I know of no uh, ongoing discussions in the government uh, to do that, I think that um, there's a strong feeling that the wide range of activities that consular affairs does at the State Department is best left in the State Department because it involves dealing uh, with security issues, but it also involves dealing with a wide range of other uh, uh, matters having to do with uh, how we function as a country economically, our openness to uh, to business, to trade, and, and um, any number of other uh, issues. So um, I know that my boss uh, isn't looking to give it up, and as, I, as far as I understand, there are no bosses of other uh, agencies who are looking to take it over. So uh, for the time being, I think we'll uh, stay organized uh, as we are. Thank you. Uh, Joe Caselli, American University. Uh, my question is, how can the United States encourage secular opposition parties without alienating the ruling parties? Because this, the choice seems right now to be either you have to be part of the ruling party or you have to join a fundamentalist organization to have any kind of um, alternative. So how can, how can you balance those two facts out? <clears throat> um, why didn't we cut off the questions a moment ago? Um, <clears throat> Uh, we, we recognize that there are governance issues in many different countries and that we are always balancing our security concerns with our values. And, um, you know, my boss, the Secretary of State, has been very emphatic in saying that we are not um, moving back from our commitments to uh, democratization and good governance, but that we believe that we can do a more effective job uh, in terms of advancing those goals and advancing those values uh, in terms of by having more discreet conversations uh, with those uh, uh, with the governments of those different countries and uh, you know I, I i don 't think that she wants to back away from the idea that we have to create more political space that 's been a constant among u s administrations for uh, quite a while um, but it is a uh, it is a long term process, and you have identified some serious challenges. Yeah. Last one. Right here. Thank you. My name is Suraj Saswan with the Charity and Security Network, and I guess there's been a lot of reports recently about radicalization, the pre-radicalization process, and I wanted to get your thoughts about that, but also with, especially with regard to the difference between just radical thoughts and the acts of violence. Thank you. Well, uh, this is another issue on which experts could um, speak for uh, days. And one of the, uh, I think that perhaps the most important thing to say in that context is that uh, 
Um, as I said at the end of my remarks, uh, we don't know nearly enough about uh, the process by which uh, people become radical and turn to violence. I think what we do know is that there is an extraordinary amount of variety in terms of the pathways to radicalization, which from an intelligence and uh, you know, defensive perspective makes our jobs enormously complicated and, uh, and challenging. And that is one of the reasons why every time someone thinks they've come up with the profile, um, you know, they turn out to be wrong. And uh, there turns out to be, you know, uh, a, a, a female suicide bomber or a suicide bomber who's, you know, in his 40s or 50s or 60s. And um, it is an enormously challenging uh, area. And, um, you know, I, I spoke about some of the uh, drivers of radicalization and the ones that, you know, I think we have uh, some opportunities to get at involve social deprivation, but it would be a mistake uh, to uh, suggest that we don't also face a threat from individuals who have encountered nothing in terms of direct deprivation, and there are a large number of these. Uh, and uh, if, you know, one one case in point has to do with the uh, December 25th, or I did it in, on purpose, the December 25th conspiracy uh, where the individual in question appears to have had uh, quite a privileged life. And, you know, certainly the history of revolutionary activity and, and radicalization in many different movements over uh, more than a century indicates that, you know, there's a high-low phenomenon and a lot of people who uh, have had very privileged circumstances turn to uh, radical activity. So um, I'm going to leave it to institutions like uh, Cato and my former homes, uh, Brookings and CSIS, to uh, uh, deliver more information on this vitally important issue. We certainly have an awful lot of people working on it uh, in our intelligence communities, and uh, it's becoming quite an industry within academia, and, um, you know, not a minute too soon, I would say. Uh, we really do need a lot more enlightenment on this issue. So, anyway. All right. Thank you very much. Can uh, everyone join me, please, in uh, thanking Ambassador Benjamin. Thank you. Thank you. Good. Thank you very much. Uh, just a few quick housekeeping notes uh, before you all break. Um, uh, contrary to what you may have heard, uh, here at Cato we do believe in a free lunch. You can, we, uh, 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 but but the, the exchange is you, you, you do what you just did, which is sit through a simulating discussion. Uh, I want to thank, first of all, uh, my colleague Jim Harper for chairing uh, an excellent, I thought, adult conversation on terrorism. I want to thank all the panelists. Uh, Clark Ken Irvin, Paul Piller, Priscilla Lewis, Jacob Shapiro, and Mike German uh, for their contributions. I also, again, want to thank uh, the Atlantic Philanthropies and the Open Society Institute for their generous support of Cato's counterterrorism initiative. And by way of shameless self-promotion, uh, I will remind you these flyers are available. Uh, our book, Terrorizing Ourselves, which includes contributions from a number of the people who you've heard today, uh, will be available for say, sale in May 2010. I also would direct you, uh, Jim mentioned that our counterterrorism conference that was held a year ago today uh, is available online, as are many, uh, most, frankly, of Cato's resources on both uh, counterterrorism but all the range of issues uh, online. This flyer is also available, so please avail yourselves of that. And with that, thank you all very much for attending, and, th and uh, good day. <laughs>